Well, Jack Butler was depressed. A recession in the United States auto industry had left Jack without a job. And since he didn't have a job and since the family still needed income, his wife Caroline had gone back to work, leaving Jack at home taking care of the kids. Uh, In his depression, he began to really let himself go. He wasn't taking care of himself. He wasn't even shaving. He was barely getting out of his pajamas till the middle of the day. And and, and life was just spiraling down. But maybe it was that depression or maybe it was something else that when Caroline's boss, Ron, showed up at the house to pick her up for a business trip, uh, Jack sprung into action. And looking down, he saw that he was wearing a bathrobe and he wanted to look more manly than that. So he, he put on a Detroit Lions hat and he he grabbed the chainsaw and he came walking into the room, chainsaw blaring, stating to Ron that he planned to totally remodel the back side of the house. And, and, and Ron, seeing this as an opportunity to make some small talk with his newest employee's spouse, said, oh, you're going to rewire the whole thing in 220. Well, that was a question that Jack wasn't ready for. So Jack just kind of sat there for a second and he said, yeah, 220, 221, whatever it takes. So goes the story of Jack Butler as revealed to us in the 1983 movie, Mr. Mom. Uh, If you've ever seen that, uh, it was a movie that I I, I saw a long time ago, but that scene sticks out to me. I think the reason why that scene in that movie sticks out to me so much is because I've had many moments in my life like Jack Butler, where I have been in a situation where there was some piece of information, some terminology or whatever, that as a man I felt like I should know. Most of them pertaining to something related to construction or building or or tactile things. And somebody will let some term just roll off of their tongue and I just kind of, yep, 220, 221, whatever it takes. Uh, I've been in that spot many times. And, you know, I mean, guys, we love to build, don't we? We feel like we, it's, it's a part of our identity that we ought to be why do you think we like going to Lowe's or Home Depot so much I don't know how to use you know 95 percent of the stuff in there but it makes me feel more masculine just to walk the halls concrete floors it looks like a garage it's incredible Uh, there's something about that that just makes me I think it's because guys we, we feel like there is a portion of our identity as men that ought to be able to construct things. And, and I was thinking about that this week, and I was wondering, I wonder if there's a connection to our belief as men that we ought to be able to construct things and the fact that Jesus was a carpenter. I mean, is it possible, right, that, that we feel like it's important, I'm kidding, that we feel like it's important for us to be able to build things because Jesus was a carpenter. Um, you know, when you, when you think about uh, that fact, this is the way my mind works, I began to think, yeah, Jesus was a carpenter, Jesus was a builder. And I began to think, how interesting would it be if we could go back 2,000 years and see the stool that Jesus built, and see the house that Jesus designed, to see the store that Jesus and his dad helped put together. You ever thought about that? That's a, that's, a, that's a wild idea that Jesus during his earthly life actually built things, very physical things. And I, I was thinking about that and I was, I was thinking about 
uh, today and the fact that Jesus is no longer walking around the streets of Palestine, but he's actually resurrected and he's in heaven now. And I, I began to wonder, you know, the fact that Jesus has resurrected, has he now retired from the building business? Has Jesus retired from the building business now that he's resurrected? And that question led me to look at some passages in Scripture and to answer a definitive no. Jesus has not retired from the building business. And matter, as a matter of fact, the most current building project that Jesus is working on is currently under construction. And we see this in Matthew chapter 16. So we're going to look at under construction from Matthew 16, 13 to 19 today. So if you've got a Bible, take it out and open to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16 is nearing the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, and he'd already spent some time with his disciples, and he had already performed many miracles. But after having been with them a while and after having done various miracles and developed a reputation for himself in different areas, including a Gentile area known as Caesarea Philippi, uh, Jesus gathered his disciples and he asked them a question. So these six verses read this way, and then we'll go back and unpack them a little bit. But in verse 13, he says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Son of Man being a very common name that Jesus gave himself. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. In other words, people think that you're a dead person who's come back to life. All of those people had passed away at this point. But Jesus' ministry in various aspects reminded the people of Elijah or John the Baptist or Jeremiah. But then Jesus changes the subject slightly. He says, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so goes this famous interaction between Jesus and and his disciples, with Peter, uh, characteristically so, being the spokesperson for those disciples. But what, what's interesting, when we, we look at this passage and we, we think of trying to answer that question, is Jesus retired from the building business? This passage gives us some very interesting clues. And the first clue that I think that this passage gives us is this. It tells us that He is building a building. Tells us that he's building a building. Uh, We see this in chapter 16, uh, in verse 18. He says, I tell you the truth that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. In other words, Jesus was building 
a church, the most current construction project that Christ is a part of is a project of building a church. And so the question is, if Jesus is still in the building business, if Jesus is still building this building that is the church, what kind of a building is it? What kind of a church is it that Jesus is building? And I think this passage gives us a number of indications as to the the kind and character of the church that Jesus was building. Um, the, The first thing that I think that we see is that Jesus was building a building, not of wood and not of stone, but a building of people. Jesus was building a church of people. Uh, it's just very interesting. In, in, in 16, verse 18, when he says that on this rock I will build my church, this is the first instance in the Gospels of the word church. First instance of the word. Only one other time in the book of Matthew is the word church even used. And yet we use it all the time. And because we use the word church all the time, we have a very specific understanding of what church is. Now, it's probably, you know, filled with lots of different pieces, but but certainly one of those pieces as 21st century American Christians is that church is a building, a building like this. When When I talk to people and they say, you know, what time are you going to get to the church? The building. What is happening in the church this week because we would like to reserve a room, a building. One of the definitions, the meanings that we attach to this understanding of the word church is a building. But how would the disciples have heard this? How would Peter and the rest of the gang have understood when Jesus said, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church? What would they have understood that to mean? And really, when you think about what they would have understood is this word um, church is the Greek word ekklesia. And that word ekklesia, it comes from a verb ekaleo, which actually means to call out from. And so literally, when Jesus was going to try to describe a a different group of people, when he was going to try to describe this new thing that he was going to build, uh, the best word that he could come up with was that this group would be a church, a group of people who would be called out and set apart from the others that lived in their surroundings. He couldn't say, um, and, and upon this rock I will build my nation, because nation was, was Israel at that time. And, and actually Israel, the nation, was getting ready to, through their leaders, reject Christ. His plan was getting ready to enter mystery mode where he would go from working primarily through a nation, which was Israel, to primarily through a group of people who would be called out from the other nations of the earth and would be the people of God, the church. When Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my church, what he means is not that he's going to build a building like a physical structure building, but that he's going to build a building of people. And the New Testament is full of other images that help us to understand that that, that, that you and I, that people are like living stones that are being stacked together by God into a holy place of worship. Uh, 1 Peter is a great example of that. Uh, Remember, who is it that Jesus is talking to directly in conversation here? Peter. When Peter thinks about rocks and churches, what does he do? 
He thinks about living stones and people. In, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, he says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is building a building right now. But the building that he is building is a building of people. A building of you and I as living stones that are being stacked together into a place where God dwells. A place where he can be worshipped. The first thing we see that the building that Jesus is building is a building of people, not of brick and mortar. The second thing that we see is this, this, this group of people is being built on top of the rock. It says in, in 16, in verse 18, he says uh, that I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. Now, when you think of that phrase, on this rock I will build my church, there are several possible interpretations. You probably have heard at different times in your life different interpretations of what this rock really is. Really, there's, there's three interpretations that are dominant in understanding what this rock is. One interpretation is to say that the, this rock is Peter. That Peter is the rock. Uh, that view is a view that is, is uh, probably most popular within um, the Catholic Church when you have a pope and you have a secession of authority all the way from Peter on down to the current uh, pope who is in, is, is, is in office. But, but what is the biblical understanding of that? Of that? Uh, really, the, the biblical understanding of the fact that Peter is this is that Peter's name means rocky. That's his name. His name is rock. And so when Jesus says, upon this rock, I'll, your name is Peter, your name is rock, and on this rock, I'll build my church. When we read that, we think, okay, this rock must mean Peter. That's one possible understanding of this. Another possible understanding would be to say that, that this rock is not Peter, but that this rock is Peter's confession of faith. In other words, the, the rock of the church was the fact that Jesus had just said that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That the rock of the church that it would be built on was the faith of the followers. And in that understanding, this would refer back to that declaration that Peter had. A third possibility is not that it was Peter, and not that it was Peter's faith or Peter's declaration, but the third possibility is that this rock is referring to Jesus himself. That when Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church, that really he was saying something very poetic. He was saying, hey, Rocky, you're Rocky. But on this rock, Jesus speaking, the church will be built. Now, there's some significant reasons, I believe, that would indicate why that is the most appropriate understanding of this verse. I think that one of the reasons why it's appropriate to understand this verse in that way is that there's actually a different word used for rock. The, mo the easiest way, if Peter was the intended meeting, the easiest way for Jesus to do this was for him to say, you are rocky, and on rocky I will build my church. 
on this rocky. That would make the most sense. But in fact, Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, you are rocky, Petras. But on this rock, Petra, which is a different form of the word entirely, I will build my church. Petras has its root in an Aramaic word, Kepa, which was a, a common Aramaic name in the day. Petra has its roots in a Greek understanding of rock. They sound very similar to us. They would have sounded similar to them, but it was a way that Jesus was giving an alliteration, I believe, of pointing out the fact that there was a distinction between Peter's name and the foundation upon which the church would grow. Another reason why I think it's appropriate to see the rock not as Peter, but the rock as um, as Jesus is because of all of the uses and, and images throughout the Bible of rock being connected with the Messiah. Very common, very, very common. Um, in in uh, Psalm 118, verse 22, you can write these down and look at them later if you want to. Psalm 118, verse 22, Isaiah 28, verse 16, verses where the Messiah is seen to be a rock. Um, Jesus himself identified himself as a stone. Just a few verses later in chapter 21 of Matthew in verse 42, when Jesus is quoting an Old Testament passage and says this about himself. He says, have you never read in the scriptures that the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone? The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. The idea of stone being connected to Messiah was something that ran through Old Testament prophecy. Uh, it was something that was also connected to Christ by Peter himself. Remember the verse that we saw in 1 Peter chapter 2 when he talked about Jesus being the chief cornerstone of the church upon which we like living stones have been stacked. Peter heard this. Peter understood this. And what he understood it to mean was not that he himself was the foundation of the church, but that Jesus was. That's why Peter, in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5, would refer to Jesus as the chief stone, and he, among others. Another, another line of argument for this is that, look at the way, even though Peter did step forward in the book of Acts and take a prominent leadership role in the early church, uh, never is Peter given preferential treatment. Never is Peter seen as, you know, all high and mighty, by the other disciples or, or by Jesus. Peter is, is one of them. Peter is not to be worshipped. Um, by all of these kinds of indications, we can see that the building that Jesus was building was a building of people. And it was a building of people that were founded and grounded upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is building a church, a people called out, built upon himself. A third thing we can see about the building that Jesus is building is that each of these living stones, each person that will make up this place, this church, is hand-selected and handcrafted by Christ himself. Uh, we see this in verses 13 to 18. Uh, we'll read over those again. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said, But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You're the Son of the living God. That was a, a great, 
great phrase there, son of the living God. Not the, not, not the son of the God of a dead idol. The son of the living God. Jesus says, that's who you are, Jesus. A very clear and concise declaration of the person of Christ. And yet, what does Jesus say right after that? He says, blessed are you, Simon, for you're smarter than all the rest. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. He went back and called him his original name. He went back and called him the name of his father. He went back and called him the most earthly, physical, flesh and blood name he could possibly call him. To emphasize a point. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father who is in heaven. You see, Simon didn't become Peter because he was smarter than everybody else. Simon didn't come to understand that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, because he was more righteous than everybody else. Or because he was more theologically educated than everybody else. Jesus says to him, Blessed are you, Simon, because you have received a gift. God has revealed something to you that gives you an accurate understanding of who I am. And though everybody else might think that I'm a dead prophet, you know that I'm a son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. And I think it's really important for us to remember that that is true of us as well. You know, we are not a living stone in Christ's church built on His foundation because we're smarter, more righteous, or whatever. We are there because we have been hand-selected and handcrafted by a revelation from God. Not by just our own discovery, by a revelation from God that we have received by faith so that we might be included in this, in this temple. Blessed is Simon and blessed are we when we have been revealed something this great by God himself. So, the church is a collection of people who have been called out, built on the foundation of Christ and handcrafted each of us as a living stone into this temple, into this church. But the next thing we see about this church that Jesus was building uh, is that the church that Jesus was building was going to grow. The church that Jesus was building was going to grow. Upon this rock, I will build my church. It is going to happen. It is definite. The church of Jesus Christ will be built. And furthermore, the church of Jesus Christ that is being built this building project that's currently under construction has no known enemy that can defeat it. Even the gates of Hades itself, the power of Satan, the power of death, all of those things do not have the ability to derail the growth of the church that Jesus is building. This is a, a, a firm declaration that Jesus gives. You know what? It is played out true historically. You know, when Jesus said this... Let's, let's, let's estimate on the low end, and let's say that there were 11 guys that got it. Now, you know, we, we might go up to 100 and say there were or 200 or so. But let's say, you know, somewhere between 11 and 200 
people got it at this point. They, they really had received this revelation. They understood who Jesus was, and they were getting ready to be built as a living stone, handcrafted into this temple. You know, today there are over a billion Christians in the world. Jesus' statement that upon the foundation of myself, the church would be built, the church would grow, has come true. Over all kinds of languages, over all kinds of distance geographically, over all kinds of uh, uh, other obstacles, the church of Jesus Christ has grown. And you know what? That's true macro level. It's also true on a micro level. You know that, that there was recently a study done of individual congregations. Uh, it was done in 1996 by a German uh, theologian named Christian Schwartz. And uh, Christian Schwartz uh, interviewed uh, churches in 32 different countries on five continents. And he got 4.2 million different responses from individual churches. This is a very extensive study. It took a very long time to complete. Uh, but what they found in the thousand churches that they surveyed, 4.2 million participants taking to the survey in those thousand churches, what they found was that in all of those churches, if, if the church was, in the eyes of the members, was achieving some level of competency in eight key areas of church life, things like worship and, and, and uh, uh, small groups and, and organized structures and some different things. And what they found was that if, if church was, you know, was excelling in those areas, that 99.8% of the time, that church was also growing numerically. Isn't that fascinating? Now, you know, we, we just saw earlier that the church doesn't, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not based upon us. It's upon the selection of Christ. But I think that when you look at that statistic, this is what it ought to cause us to see. Jesus Christ has built into the church the capacity for growth. Just as Jesus Christ has built into humans the capacity for growth, so Jesus has built into his church the capacity for growth. You know, my, my son Joshua just turned one this last week. And uh, Josh is, is bigger now than he was when he was born. Uh, he was born at three pounds, nine ounces, and he, he just rang in, tail of the tape this week, uh, right around 20 pounds. You know, that is over six times his, his size. He's, he's grown over six times, you know. I I'm hoping that I can't eclipse that record this year. You know, um, that would be crazy, right? He grows so much in that, early, in that early time. And you've seen this with your kids too. And when you see that, you think, you know what? He's not trying to grow. God has just made a child to grow. He has placed within children the capacity for growth. So that when conditions are there, the child will grow. And when you think about that uh, in the relation to the church... I think that Jesus' statement that I will build my church lets us know that the church was built and designed by God for growth. He intends for there to continually be people who would be coming into a relationship with him as he reveals and calls them out. And when you think about all of these things that we've seen about the building that Jesus is building, this building of people on his foundation of living stones that is growing the gates of Hades can't even prevail against it. When we see all of that, we, we have to stop and ask ourselves the question, what 
does embracing that truth by faith look like for us? What does it look like for us to embrace by faith that this building, that Jesus is building, is something that, that is going on right now in our midst? I think it means a few things for us. Uh, one of the things, I think, if we embrace that truth by faith, it ought to encourage us to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. It ought to encourage us to share it with them. You know, one of the great um, demotivators for me, and, and just, just to be honest, maybe you have experienced this too, one of the great demotivators for me in talking to others about Christ is when you, you talk to a few people and, and nobody ever responds. And you think, well, you know, it's, it's like milk past the expiration date. It just must not be good anymore. I just am going to keep this to myself. You know, and, and the reality is, if, if we begin to think that the church is not growing anymore, then we lose motivation, we lose encouragement, we lose the truth basis upon which we might share the gospel with others. But when we remember and when we realize that Jesus Christ is, is building his church, then that ought to encourage us to think, what's the next stone going to be? Is the next stone, living stone, that's going to be called out and placed into this context? Is it going to be my neighbor? Is it going to be my, my dad? Is it going to be my, my friend? Is it, who, who's it going to be? Because Jesus says, I am building my church. At the time he declared this, it was yet future because he had yet to go to the cross. He had yet to be resurrected. But right now, he is in that building program. It's under construction. Who's the next stone? We've got to be encouraged to share that more. I'll tell you another instance. When we think about embracing that truth by faith, even as a church. Uh, you know, you have heard us talk about this, and, and uh, we're getting ready to, to launch a a program where we're going to communicate a lot more about uh, the construction of a new children's ministry building. Um, you know, we're, we're going to be talking more about that in what we call the Pass It On initiative, which will be starting on March uh, the 30th, which is two weeks from today. We'll be getting a lot more information out to you about that idea. But well, why would we think of building another building? Uh, we would think of building another building because right now we're at a maximum capacity and what we can handle with space for children. And we believe, by faith, that the church that Jesus is building is still under construction. That there are more living stones that represent the hearts and lives of children and their parents that God wants to stack here. And since we believe that, we, we, we look at our, our, our future and we look at, at where God is taking us and we think, you know what, we are going to need some additional physical space in order to house that. Now what we saw, the building that Jesus is building is not brick and mortar. But when we get our, our, our mind wrapped around, when we embrace by faith the fact that that building that he is building is the hearts and lives of people, and that more of those people will be here. Though we have a lot of red seats empty in this room, we have a lot of bodies packed into small spaces downstairs. And so one of the things that we've done as a church leadership as we've thought through that is that, you know, a step of faith would be to construct this building and trust that God would continue to add to our numbers, that there would be space for more children to come into a relationship with Christ and their families as well. You know, a, a, another way when we embrace this, though, that we need to remember by faith is that we need to remember to stay attached 
to Jesus Christ. We need to remember to stay attached to Christ. You know what's interesting? He says, the church that I am building, my church, Jesus says, is being built and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The future of Jesus' church is rock solid. But you know what? There's no guarantee about the future of my church or your church in the sense of if it's about me or if it's about you. When we wander away from Christ, we lose our total capacity, our total ability, our total relevance for this world. Because Christ's church is promised to grow. And when we're connected to Him, wonderful things happen. But if we ever wander far afield to where we're building something around personality or whatever... We get in lots of problems. You know, a number of the problems that churches have had over the history of the church have come when churches have lost their connection to Christ. They've become the church of whatever cult of personality is out there. And what happens when that cult of personality dies or falls? The church is scattered. But the church of Jesus Christ, there's an incredible future for that. The gates of Hades will not even overwhelm it. So this project that is under construction, we see that Jesus is building a building, and that building that he's building is the church of Jesus Christ. Now, a second thing I want us to see comes from verse 19. That's really this simple statement. He can do it, we can help. He can do it, we can help. Now, I had to throw something in there about Home Depot, right? Um, what is Home Depot's motto? You can do it, we can help. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, I can do it. I will build my church. I am both the foundation and the builder. I will build my church. But then right after he says that, verse 19 says, and I want you to be a part of helping to build it. Uh, Verse 19 says this. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now that's a a very uh, complicated verse. It seems very strange uh, when you read it. You think, well, what in the world is that talking about? Does that mean that, you know, again, keep in mind, this is all when we're attached to Christ. This is all when he is working through us. But what does it mean that we have been given the keys of the kingdom of heaven? Well, I think that this idea of the keys of the kingdom of heaven is that Jesus has graciously invited us to participate in his building project. He's asked us to help. Not to help in terms of of manipulation or of power, but to help in the idea that he is giving us keys that he wants us to be able to use to unlock entry into the kingdom for others. In other words, entrance into the kingdom, the forgiveness of sins, that requires people to embrace an understanding of who Christ is. The way in which that is communicated is by God's work. We saw that earlier. But as God works, he'll oftentimes work through us to share that message. The good news about Christ that we share is like a key that unlocks the door. And Jesus has desired for us to carry those keys. I don't know if you ever watched the Andy Griffith Show. Did you ever watch the Andy Griffith Show? You know the, um, uh, the, the jail that Andy Griffith worked at in Mayberry. 
um, in between the two jail cells was a nail. And on that nail was what? The keys to the jail. And, and who would come in there and let themselves in and out of jail? Otis. Otis would do that all the time. Otis was the town drunk. He would come in. He would get, you know, as they would say, a snootful. He'd come in. He'd grab the key. He'd unlock the door. He'd go in. He'd lay down. He'd get sober up. Then when he was sobered up, he'd reach around. He'd grab the key. He'd let himself out, and, and he would leave. The Mayberry Jail was a place you could let yourself in and out of. But in the providence of God, the kingdom of God doesn't have as its primary vehicle of entrance and exit, keys that we just walk and grab off a wall. Jesus desires that the transmission of his message go from person to person to person, that it is passed on from one person to another, from one generation to another. Jesus has placed these keys in our hearts and in our lives for us to share with others. He's done more than just hang them on a hook. He wants it to come through us. Think about how you came to Christ. Chances are very, very, very good that there was a human who was at work in that. You might think, no, 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 I read a book. That book write itself? Somebody wrote it. Well, no, 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 I was listening to the radio. That radio have a voice of its own? No, somebody was, was there. You know, I, I was a, a friend, whatever it is. But human transmission of this message is what happens. And I think that's what Jesus is saying when he says the keys of the kingdom have been given to us. That he desires that we would be able to go around and help unlock the chains of sin and of struggle that are holding people down so that they might have an entrance into the kingdom. You know, I I have this little one-year book of hymns on my desk and every day of the year it has a a different hymn from church history and and it talks about uh, some of the uh, the great truth that's there, it explains it for us. But there, there's one verse in the Charles Wesley hymn, And Can It Be, that I think is a wonderful picture of this idea of unlocking. Uh, it says this, it says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke in the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. What a beautiful poem that expresses this idea that we have keys to a kingdom that can set people free. And God desires for us to share that with them. And so I would just, I would just challenge you uh, today, as I would challenge myself. Um, if he can do it, but we can help, who might Christ be wanting you to invite to church next Sunday? Next Sunday is Easter. People think about church on Easter. Uh, you talk to other church staff people, not here, but we joke. I've joked about this with friends that are pastors other places. There's a, there's a certain C and E crowd. It's the Christmas and Easter crowd, right? There are people that want to come to church on those days. Uh, what a great opportunity that we have to be able to invite a friend to come next Sunday and to hear the good news of Christ shared. Maybe there's something more direct or more specific, a conversation, a lunch, a book that you would share with them, whatever, but we've been given keys to unlock a dungeon, keys to the kingdom. And so that's that part of it, but what about this binding and loosing? What is, the, what is meant behind this idea of binding and loosing? Whatever is bound on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever is loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. That, that language is what is used by rabbis, 
at the time of Christ. It was used to talk about things that were permitted or forbidden. Things that were permitted or forbidden. And I think that what Jesus is getting at when he talks about the uh, you know, binding and loosing is that he was getting at the fact that the church would be a place where people could go to find out what was permitted or forbidden in the providence of God. The church would be a place as the New Testament would flow through the pen of the apostles and as we would read it and as we would teach it and as we would talk about it, it would be a place where we would find out what was permissible and impermissible from heaven's perspective, what is best for us and what is harmful to us from heaven's perspective. That that perspective would come to the earth through the church. This doesn't mean that the church is going to have the ability to, to write a bunch of new rules and laws that would be binding to everybody across time or that the church is infallible in any way. But what I think Jesus was getting at here was that the church would be a place that would help people understand and discern right from wrong. What is permissible and what is forbidden. And when you think about that understanding, you can think that that's a lot of what we're about. Now, why is it at Wildwood that we have a message each week where we teach things and we look at God's Word together? Um, part of the reason why is that our minds need adjustments continually to understand what is right and wrong, who God is really. We need those kinds of reminders on a regular basis. And so that's part of what we're doing. We're reminding ourselves of what is permitted and forbidden. Um, and in our personal lives, we relate to our friends that we can help direct them back towards a biblical understanding of the world. Um, well, he's building a building. And he can do it. But he's invited us to help. You know, as we end our service today, I, I just want to um, encourage you um, if you're here today and you have never embraced Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you've never come to a spot where when Jesus says, who do you say that I am, that you could say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. If that is something that has not happened for you, but as we have talked today, you feel like God is parting the seas and revealing to you that He desires you to be a living stone in His community then we would love to pray with you. And at the conclusion of uh, closing song, we'd invite you to come up. There'll be some of us here at the foot of the cross. We'd love to pray for you. We'd love to talk to you more about that. Uh, because this Easter season, what a great time to, for Christ to part the water for you and to see Him for who He really is. And also, if, if, you're, if you're here today and this is something that you have embraced long ago, that truth... But maybe today is the first time in a while or a refresher for you. You've come to realize that Jesus is building his church. And he has invited us to participate with him. I would just challenge you to think of what that looks like for you. What does embracing that by faith look like for you? Um, let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the time that you've given us today. We thank you for the opportunity to look into your word and to hear your call to us. Father, we, we pray that you would um, just allow us to be people who would embrace by faith the fact that your church is growing. 
And that, Father, as we embrace that truth, that we would give you praise, that we would give you honor. And, Father, that we would respond appropriately. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.